I was gonna tell you be seated, but in like two seconds I'm gonna ask you guys to stand up again. So, um, but um, if definitely, um, I think I should be on. Yeah, hello? Yeah. Um, it's definitely a privilege and an honor uh, to be before you this morning. Um, yeah, you guys can be seated. And when I tell you guys to stand up, y'all stand up. Because <laughs> you guys a little bit of race. Uh, rest. But um, it's definitely a privilege and an honor. And um, I've, I've learned to take this moment of um, being privileged with bringing forth the word this morning as a privilege um, and an honor. Not something that I have to do, but something I have the opportunity to do so. Um, because when you really rest on truthfully who God is and what he did for us, um, and not necessarily what he's doing per se, um, about, you know, any situations I may be in, but let, just alone what we've been focusing on or we've started to focus on this month, which is the cross, um, just, just resting on that alone, for me to be able to be standing here as a servant of his, to be able to proclaim his word is a privilege and an honor. So I thank God every time that I'm, I'm able to have the chance to do so. Um, I'm sure you guys already know I'm not Pastor Dwayne, right? <laughs> um, for those who don't know me, I'm Brother Allen. Um, and um, so this morning I'll be, I'll be continuing the series. I believe I uh, started with uh, Brother Jason last week um, on the cross for the, this month. And um, today we're going to, my, the title message is In My Place. Um, and now I'm going to ask everybody to stand as we do scripture, scripture reading. And I want everybody to turn now to Isaiah 53. <laughs> Um, if you don't have any bio, if you don't have a Bible, there's Bibles in the back. Looks like everybody got one today. Or <laughs> All right, Isaiah 53. All right, it says, "Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom, and to whom uh, has the arm of the Lord have been revealed?" For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out, out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men had hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was a chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken from, for the transgression of my people. And they, verse 9 says, And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his, soul's make, when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. If 
bow your heads. Lord, we thank you um, for this day that you've allowed us to um, experience even just the beginning of. We know that life is not promised, and we thank you for the life that you've given us thus far. It is a privilege and an honor, Lord, and it's a gift from you, Lord, and we acknowledge that and we are grateful to you for it. Lord, as we now take time of, of partaking in your word, Lord, and you've given me the, the, the duty, the honor of slicing up literally um, your daily bread and to, to see what you have made out of it. See your intent in the scriptures and to see your intent, um, especially with the cross and the sacrifice of your son for us all. I ask, Lord, that you, you humble me, Lord, let not any words that come out of my mouth um, let me be humbled. Let not any words that come out of my mouth be any opinion or view that is contrary to your scriptures. Let every word that comes out of my mouth be pure and holy, Lord, as I represent you and you alone. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So I was given the assignment uh, this morning to speak to you about the title, In My Place. Um, and, and it was from a book. I'm taking from a book the title of In My Place Condemned He Stood, The Glory of the Atonement. Um, I tell you, it was a challenge reading the book. Um, I, I, was, I was in the car with, uh, with Nadira during the week, and I got done with one. It was, it's a book compiled of four articles, um, three by J.I. Packer, who wrote also Knowing God, and, and uh, one by Mark Dever, who wrote Nine Marks of a Healthy Church. Um, and I was reading through one of the J.I. Packers, and I'm telling you, I'm sure he wrote that article for somebody who went through seminary three times, because that thing was complicated. And I'm like, I was texting PD, like, PD, J.I. Packer's wilding right now. Like, <laughs> he needs to get to the point so I can get what he's talking about. But it was good because he set down the foundation, but he just did it in such a way, like, I almost, like, every other word had to press and define, because he's using these big words. But it was because that article, I guess, was, was geared towards a, a, um, a group of people who were in that, in that state, I guess. And so what the, what the book was dealing with is a, a notion of, it's, it's a, a, a belief, which is from the scriptures, not a belief that is made outside the scriptures, but a belief from the scriptures, um, from, what, from what Paul proclaims and what from the different um, the New Testament proclaims, which is, and even the Old Testament looks forward to, which is something that's called penal substitution. Uh, penal substitution, um, I didn't know what it was before. I, I, I never heard it <laughs> before uh, I read this book. I've heard of the actual concept, but I never heard that, that uh, title. But penal substitution is this. So let's first take the word substitution. Substitution means someone is put into your place. We've all gone through school, and I'm sure we all look towards the day when we heard that Mr. Such and Such or Mrs. Such and Such is not here and we got a substitute because somebody's in place of that teacher. The teacher was not there, so somebody has been put in place of that, of that teacher. And then we take the word penal, penal meaning the penalty, meaning that Christ on the cross, the, the, the book was dealing with the fact that on the cross, Christ was our penal substitution. He was there in place of us to take the penalty that we deserve. Now, as to me, I, I can only speak for myself, I can't speak for the minds of others, but for, for me, as basic as that may be the scriptures, there are a lot, there's a lot of opposition to this thought. Um, there's some people who take the word substitute and rather replace it with representative. But what happens is when you have a representative, just like we live in the United States of America, we elect a representative, and so we choose a representative, the representative goes in names of us. So pretty much, so now because we've elected our representative, we can now, you know, ask them to send bills, and, and we have a cert, sort of power. Because if we elected a mayor in our town, then now we can go to the town means, well, I elected you into this position, so I need this done, and so I need, I need you to do this because I put your vote in. And so because of that, you see politicians, we look time and time again, they do something more for the people than for the country. 
which is kind of weird because the people are the country, but yeah. But when you, that's what happens when you change that word from substitute to representative. When we're in class, we don't pick the substitute. The one who is in authority chooses the substitute and puts it in place of our class. So we don't know that we wish that it's that one substitute that doesn't do anything, that just puts the work on the board, lets us do, roam the hallways when we want to. And I'm sure I'm not the only one that, that feels that way. But then we get in there and we get, it's that one that really acts like they're the real teacher and really gives you more work than your actual teacher gave you. You have no choice. You walk into that, you hear you have a substitute, you don't know who the substitute is, and you walk in and it's already given to you. So I mean, substitution is outside of our choice and outside of our own, our own power. And so that's what happens when you start to tweak certain things of it. And penal substitution is an essential part of the gospel. Because in someone, and in another, we talked about substitution and let's talk about the penal part, is that there's a lot of people that have a problem with thinking that Jesus took on the punishment of God the Father. And when we, there's a reason why I went through Isaiah 53, because if we visit Isaiah 53 verse 4, it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God. And verse 10 says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And so I have to tell you, until maybe a year or two ago, I, I never even, not even embraced, but never even encountered this idea at all. I'll never forget, I tell people this story all the time, it was myself and another brother, Brandon, who went, um, PD was still at the youth pastor at Agape, and we went into the office, and he asked us out of nowhere, as PD usually does, anybody knows PD, he just brings up biblical questions out of nowhere, but he was like, who killed Jesus? And so, I thought I was smart, the Jews killed Jesus. Nah. P, uh, Brandon said, well, the Romans killed Jesus. No. And so he brought us to this verse, and we, I'm, I'm telling you, we probably read this like three times over and over until we got it, where it says, smitten by God, and that it pleased the Lord to crush him. And he said, God killed Jesus. And I have to tell you, my personal uh, response to it was, at first I was like, God, like, that's kind of brutal. And then immediately I thought about why? So that I can be saved. And when you think about that, it's, and we're going to talk deeper into that as we go on with the message, but that it, it shows his love, that he would he would sacrifice, literally sacrifice, not just give up his son to be sacrificed, but literally himself sacrifice his son for us. That's, that's, it's crazy. Um, it, it's crazy, but that, that's it's an amazing God that we serve. And so let's go, let's go in, into, into the message of we have to understand first and foremost that it was no, by, by no accident that Christ died. It wasn't by no um, well, he was, came here to do something, and while he was trying to be good, and then all of a sudden, people got mad, and, you know, we hate the cops, and so the cops got in the middle of it, and so now he got arrested and got crucified, but that he planned it. He, um, um, uh, there's a, a Christian rapper by the name of Kareem Manuel, and he has an album called Death by Design, and, and even, um, I forget, I believe it's in Mark 9, where Jesus says that no one takes my life, but anyone who takes my life is because I've given them authority to do so. So meaning he had power through it all. And he even told Pilate almost the same thing to his face. He says, you can't, you can't have me dead unless somebody gave you authority to do so. And so we see that Jesus had that in his mind. Once he had that, that conversation with the disciples of who do they say that I am? And when Peter revealed that he said that he is the son of God, then from then on you see that now he's revealing to the disciples that I, I have come to die and on, in three days resurrect. So meaning it was already in plan. In plan. And so we have to understand that it wasn't by no accident. And so because this has to be the foundation, before we even talk about him coming to die in our place, we have to understand that his death wasn't by accident. It was by design. It was by plan. Let's talk about the, the, the gospel message. No version of the gospel message goes deeper than that which declares man's root problem before God to be his sin 
to be his sin, meaning man's sin, which evokes wrath. And God's basic provision for man to be propitiation. Propitiation means the satisfaction, in this case, the satisfaction of the wrath of God, which, which out of wrath brings peace. Some versions of the gospel, indeed, are open to blame because they never get down to this level. We have all heard the gospel presented as God's triumphant answer to human problems, problems of our relation with ourselves and our fellow humans in our environment. Well, there is no doubt that the gospel does bring us solutions to these problems, but it does so by first solving a deeper problem, the deepest of all human problems, the problem of man's relation with his maker. And unless we make it plain that the solution of these former problems depends on the settling of this latter one, we are misrepresenting the message and becoming false witnesses of God. For a half-truth presented as if it were the whole truth becomes something of a falsehood by that very fact. No reader of the New Testament can miss this fact that it knows all about our human problems. Fear, moral cowardice, illness of body and mind, loneliness, insecurity, hopelessness, despair, cruelty, abuse of power, and the rest. But equally, no reader of the New Testament can miss the fact that it resolves all these problems one way or another into the fundamental problem of sin against God. I've heard opposition so much uh, when, when it's been presented to people like in leadership or preachers or pastors that the cross should be at the center of every message. And, 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 and the thing is, people limit it to, to believe, well, if the cross is about the message, you expect me to preach the cross every Sunday, as if there's such a limit of a message with the cross. But what, this, what I just read said is that through what the happened at the cross, which was dealing with our biggest problem, because I think it was C.J. Mahaney said that the greatest problem of every man whether they know it or not, is the, the greatest need of every man, whether they know it or not, is forgiveness for their sin. So meaning we have a lot of people, they'll rather, they'll, they'll, they'll rather take Sundays and they'll talk about the, these issues. And I'm not saying those issues shouldn't be addressed. But we have to understand that these issues are only solved in light of the cross. Meaning that even if we, even if we handle, I, I have this analogy when it comes to, well, you read the, the book of Romans, you see that Paul um, addresses sin in the singular and sins in in the plural. And what I've been taught is that he's, ta- he's sometimes addressing the nature of sin, and in the sin, also he's sometimes he's addressing the sins that we commit. And so what happens is we've all, and we, we're going to go deeper into that, we've all been condemned under, under, the, under the law of God by not only by the sins that we commit, but the nature of sin which is in us because of what happened in the garden. And so what happens is we have a lot of people who want to deal with the symptoms. Like if I have a cold, for instance, and I start sneezing and coughing, I go to CVS, for anybody that's in medical, I know Christina just finished school, and she's a nurse. In 2013, there was no cure for the common cold. I don't know if you guys knew that. Sudafed and Robitussin don't do it. <laughs> they are all symptom suppressors. And so what happens is when I go to CVS and I want to go to Walgreens and I buy my, the Sudafed and I buy the Mucinex and I buy all these things, they are to suppress a symptom. So if I told you I had a cold and I just went and took medicine, you still want to drink out of the same cup as me because I'm still sick. Although the symptoms are not showing forth, I am still sick. And so what happens is we deal with the symptoms, but we don't deal with the actual, the actual sickness, which is the disease, which is the cold. In the same way, we have a lot of times we, in the church, as, 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 um, not to say as a whole, but mainstream um, Christianity these days are dealing more with the symptoms than the sickness, we're dealing with what are the results of the, our nature of sin, which is the committing of sins, which is the, the, you know, the, the, um, the, the cruelty and the things that we do to each other. But really, that comes out of the disease that we all have all been born with, which is sin, which is the nature of sin, which can only be cured by the cross. 
which can only be cured by the blood of Jesus. So we can keep doing this pseudofed and robotest and preaching, which is great, but after a while, the sin is going to come back up because the disease hasn't been dealt with. So that's why we need to continually preach the cross and preach the cure of disease, and then out of the cure, all everything else is going to be resulted. And I think we lose sight of it as the people of Christ that we need to deal with disease before we more so than the, than the symptoms. We have to understand the seriousness of our sin. We have to understand that in, in, in the garden in Genesis, we, in James, let's, let's go back to, to James. James says, um, for we are, are drawn away by our own desires, and, and then those desires start to sin and sin unto death, right? So, meaning James tells us the idea that the, the temptations that we fall under are out of our own desires. Satan doesn't, you know, the enemy or temptation doesn't come with something brand new that you never heard of or you never felt at all to bring to you in order to tempt you, but he takes at your own desire that you already have. A lot of times the temptations and the things that we fall into is because deep inside there was a desire for that, whether it be pride, whether it be for sexual um, sins, whatever it is, but the, that little inkling, he worked on it to temptation to make it even worse for us to fall into the sin. You, you get me? There's nothing brand new in us. So in the garden... It was presenting very clearly to Eve and Adam, who was with, them, was with her, as we see in, in, verse seven, in Genesis 3, verse 7, that by eating the fruit, you will become like God. So meaning the sin in the garden wasn't just a, mm, you know, I have apples and bananas and oranges, and I just want to try a new fruit. But it was, God, I want to have, I, I, want, I want to relinquish the authority that you have over me. Because God gave Adam authority over everything over this earth. He gave him dominion over the earth. He told him to be fruitful and multiply. This guy was naming all the animals. He was naming all the fruits. Everything that we're eating and we're calling out, the dog that we have at home, the cat that we have at home, the tigers that we're scared of, the lions that we, don't, that we look at, Lion King, everything was named by Adam. He was given that authority. And so he's saying to God, that declaration was, God, you're giving me dominion over everything except for you, and that's still not enough. So sin entered in not just because we just wanted to try something different, but because we wanted to, the authority like God. We wanted to be like God. And a Christian rapper by the name of Dwayne Triumph said, but if you are like the Most High, then he's no longer the Most High. The Twin Towers were Twin Towers. You couldn't say one tower was the tallest, t- t- if, if they were the tallest buildings of the, of, the, of the world. You couldn't say one tower was the tallest building of the world. You had to say both of them were the tallest building of the world because they both were the same height, and so you had to address them as, as equals. And so... If anybody knows God, there is none equal to God. None can be equal to God. He is the God. He is, there was no God before him. There will be no God after him. And so our sin birthed out of rejection of the authority of God. And so if we read, you know, I'm sure we've seen movies in medieval times. I'm sure we've seen, we've read stories of medieval times. And kings, I'm talking about man and flesh and blood kings, didn't take that. If you came into the castle of the king and tried to take his authority, literally off with your head. And so the king of kings, the Lord of lords, it's almost as if when, when I look at our, the normal human reaction to, the, to sin against God, it's almost as if we think he's supposed to be a little bit softer than what we've seen in, in human kings, as if he's supposed to just let things rock. Like, just, you know, I'm, that's okay. I'm, I'm going to let you do that. But he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who deserves all glory, the one who deserves all um, 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 submiss- submission to, because he is the king that made kings king. And so, there's, um, John Piper has a, has a quote that says, I'm sorry, he says, the seriousness of an insult rises with the dignity of the one insulted. And so, I was, I was thinking about this quote when I first read it, and I thought about how we're more scared of getting in trouble with the principal than the teacher. 
We're more scared of being pulled over by a state trooper than a town, township cop. We're more scared of getting in trouble when, let's say, in church, church-wise, we're more scared of getting in trouble with the pastor than we are the deacon. Or at work, we're more scared of getting in trouble with the district manager than your own branch manager. And so what happens is the, high, the height of the authority, the height of the insult, or the, the, even from our, side, our perspective of it, the height of the fear of being in trouble goes up with the height of the authority of the person. But as I'm, I'm a visual person, as you will learn, but, you know, so I see as a, it's like a line graph, you know, the height of the position and the height of my fear, so it keeps going up. But for some reason, as I observe us, when it gets to God, who is the king of kings, who is the Lord of lords, who, was the, who is the one that created the ones that we're afraid of, it plummets down to zero because we sin and we don't care. As a matter of fact, I was talking about, um, I, was, I was on Twitter, and sometimes I get my tw- little Twitter rants, and I was talking about fellowship, and I was talking about even when we come together, it's easier to glorify sin than it is to talk about the word of God. It's easier to get around and talk about what you did with old girl last night than it is to talk about what scripture that you read during your devotion time, right or wrong. It's easier to talk about, you know, get, coming together and put, getting five on it and, rather than getting together and let's go to this worship service at this church around the corner. This is right. It's easier to do so, and we have no problem with those conversations. We'll sit there and we'll laugh it up, everything, play Xbox, and act like nothing happened. But sometimes it's it. But when we when we come to have even the desire of talking, it's like we have to even fight the uphill battle of even presenting the topic of the Word of God. And so I'm like, where in this line graph does it even begin to descend, or does it just come just a straight line down when it comes to God? And so we, we end up, we fearing man more than we fearing God. But we have to understand that our sin is an offense over the creator. Like he, we are scared of these things that he created. He's the one that created them. The reason why we're scared more of our district manager is because our district manager is our boss's boss. So this is our creators. These are our, the ones that our authority's authority. Whether the authority acknowledges him or not, he's the authority over him. And so we have to understand that we have an offense over a great God. And so when we understand that we are offending him, and because we, we expect God, we all know that God is supposed to be a perfect God, a holy God. And so what happens is, because he's a holy God, anything contrary to his holiness, he has wrath against. Because anything contrary to his perfection, he has to deal with. And so a lot of times we feel like when it comes to God, ah, God, it was a little sin, you know, you he shouldn't be mad about that. You should let that happen. Let, let it rock. Let it go on. I just lied. It was, it was a white lie, which is not white because there's no clean lie. It's a lie. A lie is a lie. Half truth is, is no truth, pretty much. And so he, we expect him to just let it, let it go. But then I, I heard this example. I was watching this video this week, and um, he said, the, 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 the man used the example, if somebody murdered your mother, and so they brought him to court, and he came in, pled guilty, and the judge said, well, you know what, you know, you seem like you're, you, you know, you, you feel bad for what you did, and so we're going to let you go free. How are you going to feel? You're going to look at that judge and say, you're unjust. You don't know what you're doing. You're put in that position, and you don't, you shouldn't be in that position because you just let this man go. But yet when it comes to God, us who are guilty, who are in the criminal, now we're in the defendant position because we have sinned against God, and he is the judge, we... We want now for him to play like that judge did in the first, in the first scene. And it can't, it can't, if we expect man to hold to a standard, we have to expect God to even hold to more of a standard. And he has the holiest and the most perfect standard. So when we understand that our sin goes against his standard, our sin goes against his holiness, he has the right to have wrath against us. Yeah. 
We have literally put out in our position out of our disobedience by nature and our disobedience by our own deeds. We have put ourselves in a position to be a criminal that is sentenced to death. Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death. Period. And, 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 and even, um, I heard this from Miles Monroe, and it's in scriptures. Um, in one of the Psalms, it says, in the first verse, it says that God holds his word over his very name. Meaning God is faithful to his word so much so that when he says something, he submits himself to his own word. That's why we can say something, and not to use it out of context, but that's why we can, we can repeat and, and recite the verse that says his promises are yea and amen. Because if God says something, it's going to come to pass. So you can't expect God to say, for the wage of sin is death, and later on and be like, mm, never mind, forget that I even said that. No. And that's why if we, if we run to um, it's a verse, Exodus 34, verse 7, um, I believe that there, there's, there's some people who call this, this verse the, I forgot, the, some of the paradox. But we'll read it and I'll, and I'll, explain, I'll explain why. Exodus 34, verse 7. As a matter of fact, let's start, let's start from verse 6. All right, and 30, Exodus 34, verse 6 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for th- thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Let's stop there. Here's where the paradox is. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. It's like, God, um, I'm going to need you to pick one of those statements because they don't go well together. And it comes into that, how do, you forgive the, how, do you, how do you forgive sin and transgression, but then not clear the guilty? It comes into a situation because you have to do one or the other. I can't stand before a judge and he says, well, I'm going to forgive you of, your, of your, um, your crime, but I can't let any guilty go away. In my mind, I'm going to jail. Like, as you're trying to tell me, in a nice way, you're trying to tell me, I'm going to jail. But yet we, we know and our faith stands on the fact that we are free from the chains of sin. We are free from the chains of bondage. So how do we get to this position if this is a God who is faithful to his word, has said that he will not let guilty, the guilty be cleared? First, before we understand that real quick, is that we have to understand that we have the, one of the main needs that we have is peace with God. We talk about the peace of God, but we can't have peace of God without, before we have peace with God. And I think people don't understand that, that Romans 5 says that we were en- enemies with God. Literally, enemies with God. And that's why I say, I say this sometimes, but this, this is the truth. I think one thing that misleads, especially at a child at a young age, which makes it harder for you to now proclaim the gospel as they get older, is that we, we are all been taught, a lot of us have been taught since we were little, that we are all children of God. And so what happens is, we, because we have that ingrained in our mind, we, have, we think we have a right to what God has. Meaning that we've all been born in his family. We've all, as if, but when we understand that, and I, and I don't want to dwell on this too long because there's still a lot more that we have to go through. But sin literally kicked us out of the family because by proof in Ephesians 1, 5 says we have been adopted as sons. PD and Courtney are not going to go to City Hall tomorrow to adopt Destin because Destin is biologically theirs. But, be, but if Destin has, for some reason, whatever it may be, has been kicked out of the family legally by paper, they have to now tomorrow go to City Hall and adopt them back. So because sin was a legal offense, 
one of the repercussions of it was that we are now, we have, because of that, been kicked out of the family of God, and we, have only, we are only adopted through the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen? Y'all with me? All right. Because I need, I need, I know I'm staying, I want to stay there so, but I want, I want, I want to move on. So we have to understand, if God were not just, there would be no demand for his son to suffer and die. And if God were not loving, there would be no willingness for his son to suffer and die. But God is both just and loving. Therefore, love is willing to meet the demands of his justice. We have to understand that, um, I think I went just a little bit ahead, but that's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be good there. So we have this paradox of he forgives the transgression and the sins of all, but he doesn't let them go guilty. So what happens is, we get right to, the, right to where the, message, the title of the message goes is, Someone had to stand in our place so that way they can take the position of the guilty and those who are guilty can take the position of the innocent. But the thing is, no guilty person can stand in the guilty's place because that's already your place. I, I, I use this example a lot. Is if I owe Macy's money and I, I'm in debt with Macy's, I can't go to PD and be like, all right, PD, I see that you owe money. You know what? I'm going to give everything I have to, to, to pay your debt because even when he's, his debt is paid, I still have a debt to be paid to Macy's. You, you get me? So meaning no one with debt already could come into the place of somebody with debt because then you can't really, you st- there still needs to be something to be paid for. And I use the example, if I die for, if, if Romans 5, if, let's, let's run there real quick, Romans 5. Romans 5, verse, verse, starting with verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for this, for us, in that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. Even if someone would, would die for a righteous person or would die for a good person, per se, there was still, like I said, there's still a debt that we pay. So if I die for PD, somebody would have to die for me. And so then when, if Courtney dies for me, then Destin would have to die for Courtney. And then somebody would have to die for Destin. And we'll be going off in, in this place to the whole world. And it will still leave at least one person with a debt to be paid. So meaning this is, this is grounding the fact that the person who comes in place has to be someone with a clear record. And because we've all been born with sin, it can't be any of us. It, it could not be any of us. And so we, we find that even the, even the idea of, of the concept, even still back, um, given that base for, for the sacrifice, we see that even the Israelites were taught in a way to prepare them for what was to come. Um, if you look in Passover, they, the, the idea of substitution is not new because in, in, in Passover, when, when the, Egyptian, when the uh, Israelites were in Egypt, and so the last plague where God was going was to put on Egypt was that he's going to kill all the firstborn sons. And it was also including, um, away from the condition that I'm about to give, but also including even Israelites' first sons were also on the line too. But what he told the Israelites was, through Moses, was that to, to sacrifice a lamb, take a, um, I think it was a hyssop plant, take the blood and put the blood over the doorpost. And so the angel of death, and this is another thing tying to the first thing where I had challenges when I was younger, is that the angel of death didn't make, didn't make sense to me. And this is where when I understood that God was a God of, all, not, also, not only was he a God of love, but he was a God of wrath also, 
where I understood that it was God's work even that night, that his judgment was coming, coming in the past in Egypt. And because when I was younger and I didn't understand these things, it was hard to accept. It was like, well, was it God? Was it Satan? Because what I was being taught was anything bad is Satan or anything that seems bad is Satan. And anything that seems good is God. But even those things that seem bad are good. All things work together for the good of those who love them, according to his purpose. That's where the challenge comes, according to his purpose. And so, not to, not to go too, too, too much on a tangent, but um, you see that the blood, was, the blood of the lamb was put on the doorpost. And so what happens is the idea of substitution is in every house in, in where the Israels were, there was either a dead lamb or a dead son. So meaning that where there was a dead lamb, the dead lamb stood in substitution to the dead son. That's why this idea of substitution is nothing foreign. God was already instilling it in their minds, even though they didn't realize it. They might have not even realized it, but he was already instilling it in their minds, even in the times of Israel. And we've already talked about here, and, and, and I, I kind of put a little tweak to, to what PD said, but um, just a little bit. But it, it, we already see that the whole Bible talks about redemption. The Old, uh, the Old Testament is redemption announced, the, the gospel is redemption accomplished, and the, and the, New, and the New Testament from um, Acts to, towards, to Revelation is redemption applied. And so we have to understand that these things that God was doing in Israel was a way of foreshadowing what Christ was going to do. Because even in the garden, he was already professing Christ was going to come. When he said that, that to the serpent that you will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And that's why, on a tangent, and, and this, this may, may, may be wrong, that's why I believe that it's not our job to crush the, the, the devil's head because it's already been crushed. The seed, not the seeds, the seed, which is Christ, will crush the, br- the, the head of, the, of, of Satan. So, meaning it's already been crushed on the cross. Yeah. I don't know about you, but that's liberating to me. Because it's a lot of work sometimes for me to get up and have to think about crushing on the devil's head. But when I understand that his de- head is already crushed, see, the, the enemy takes, he, he takes advantage of those who don't realize or don't put on the forefront of their mind that his head is already crushed. And so when you remind yourself constantly that he's, his head was crushed by Calvary, that he has no power over you. I'm sorry. Um, so, so the blood on the, on the post was a sign of Christ to, to come. And so even the Day of Atonement was a Le- Leviticus 16, which was a yearly um, sacrifice by Israel. It was what, was what exactly happened was very, very significant. They would take two goats. And the first goat, what would happen is they, they would, the person who would present the goats would pray over the head of the goat, which was a symbolic of their transferring of the man's sin to the, to the goat. The first goat would be sacrificed and killed. So meaning that's, that's the, the, the type of the lamb that was to be slain, slain for the sin of the world. What was done with the second one is another, is a type of the effect of the sin at, because of the atonement, which is that the second goat was then driven out of the camp. Far, far away. So meaning because of the sacrifice of the lamb, our sins are driven away. And so these things were pointing to the fact that there will be an ultimate lamb that will die for us where we won't have to do these things. Because the fact that you have to do this every year, whether you sin or you sin, not even though we sin, but even no matter what the state of Israel was, they had to do this. So meaning it wasn't doing anything but reminding them of their sin. Because they, the lambs and the goats couldn't do anything for their sin. The lambs and the goats was prim, a, a remembrance that we are, are by nature sinful. And we are waiting, looking forward to, for them, the cross, which is the ultimate lamb that will be sacrificed for the sins that we, are, we, have, been, we have been born in. And so the day of atonement was another thing to, to look forward to the, to, the, to the cross. And so 
We see now that Christ has come, that he has come to propitiate, propitiate, propitiation, propitiate the, the, the wrath of God, to satisfy the wrath of God. Because of the sin that we committed, we have now invoked the wrath of God. And so now someone has to come into place so that way we can go to Exodus 34 verse 7 and make it make sense. Well, see it make sense where he can forgive the transgressors and not let the guilty go free. And so we see that Christ, who is the son of the Godhead, comes down, he who knew no sin, in 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, let's go there real quick. I'm hoping I'm I'm, I'm making sense to you guys. I'm I'm not losing anyone. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21. It says, For our sake he, he being Christ, made him, no, he being the Father, for our sake he made him, him being Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And and from there, I I, I make this quote just a little embellishment, not an embellishment of taking it away, but that he who knew no sin became sin so that we who knew no righteousness could become righteous. He took our place. He literally put on and, 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 and he, sat, he satisfied the wrath that we invoked. He, understand this, he was the son of the Godhead. He had no reason to be treated as if he sinned because he ne- never sinned. You see the scriptures say that he knew no sin because he was in, in the God, holy, but yet he came down in the flesh of man and died for us so that now we can attain the righteousness through him. It was not man to whom God was hostile who took the initiative to make God friendly, nor was it Jesus Christ, the eternal son, who took the initiative to turn his father's wrath against us into love. Let's stop there. Um, as a matter of fact, let me keep going because it goes deeper. It says, the idea that the kind son changed the mind of his unkind father by offering himself in place of sinful man is no part of the gospel message. It is a sub-Christian, indeed an anti-Christian idea. For it denies the unity of will in the Father and the Son, and so in reality falls back into polytheism, asking us to believe in two different gods. Let's, let me break this down. When I was younger, I used to think that, um, you know, God was mad and couldn't stand man, and so Jesus being the Son was like, Dad, Dad, chill, you know, um, let, let, let's come on, let's forgive them, let's love them. Listen, uh, you know what? I'll go down, I'm going to die for, for, for them, and so we're going to be good. And so that was like, all right, whatever, go. And that, and that was kind of, I don't know if I was the only one that thought that maybe because I'm too descriptive and imaginative, I made the whole story. But for, at some degree, there's, because cause the book addresses, so I know I'm not the only one that thought that. I may have added, you know, a little, you know, flavor to it. But the, I had the idea of God was this angry God. The Father was this angry God. He was upset with us. He was done with us. And Jesus came and was a nice one and was like, listen, God, just give them one more chance. I'm going to die for them, and it's going to be all good. But what happens is it takes us into the thought of not the triune God, but that there are three different gods. Because if, if, God, if two of them are contrary to each other, that means they must be two different, two separate entities. And so, and so it divides the idea of a unity in the Trinity. So meaning it was out of the mutual love of the Father and the Son that they, the sacrifice was made. First point about propitiation. Hold on. Before I, the basic description of the saving death of Christ in the Bible is as a propitiation. That is, as that which quenched God's wrath against us by obliterating our sins from his sight. 
God's wrath and his righteousness reacting against unrighteousness, it shows itself in retributive justice. But Jesus Christ has shielded us from the nightmare prospect of retributive justice by becoming our representative substitute in obedience to his Father's will and receiving the wages of our sin in our place. I, I'm, I don't know. I was sitting here reading, and I was like, listen, if I don't get a financial breakthrough, if I don't get a new job and a promotion, if I don't get a new car, that right there is enough for me to shout about, if I shout it. I don't know how to shout, but if I shout it, that would be enough. I don't have to listen to a fresh word. I don't have to listen to a, a, a revelation. The fact that he died and now, even if I die poor, broke, and walking and taking a bus, I know that I have a life of, 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 of eternity with my father. And so my mind is not fixed on his life, but my mind is fixed on the life after this, and that's only ensured by the cross. Three things about propitiation. Propitiation is the work of God himself. So going back to what I said about the, the, the fact that it is not about, you know, the, the son making his own decision in, because of the, the anger of the father, but it was a unity of God, the whole Godhead himself. John 3.16, we know this verse, it says he gave his son. He didn't, his son didn't give himself, but he gave his son. Um, when we look at, at um, the, the, the story of Abraham and Isaac, and when I was younger, it was always told that that was a type or a foreshadowing of what was going to happen at the cross. And what I realized, again, after understanding Isaiah 53 and the fact that God gave up his son, literally, um, it pleased the Lord to crush him, was that Abraham the father took Isaac the son to the mountain. Abraham the father took Isaac the son up the mountain. Abraham the father put Isaac the son on the altar. And Abraham the father had the knife ready to sacrifice Isaac the son. And so if we, saying, if we are saying that that is a foreshadowing was to happen, then not only is the sacrifice the son, but the sacrificer is the father. And so I, it even gave John 3.16 new meaning for me because, again, with me and my visual, I always thought of that, you know, for he gave the, you know, his only begotten son as, you know, he, you know, of course, they didn't have cars. But, you know, the father driving his son is like, you know what, um, you know, these people have been bad. And so I'm going to drop you off at this place called Rome. And these, these bad people are going to come. They're going to beat you up. They're going to put you on that cross over there. But don't worry. In three days, I'll come back and pick you up. And it's almost like he just, he gave his son to be sacrificed. But he even goes deeper to that, to the point where in my, imagine, imagine you know, walk with me. Walk with me in my, imagine, in my. Yeah, imagination. That's the word. Lost words. But he literally drove up, came out of the car, opened the, side, the passenger side, grabbed his son by hand, walked him up to Calvary, and literally nailed him himself. The book of Acts, I believe it was Paul or Peter, said that he used the, he used the unholy to do his works. Because people think that just because the Romans were the one that was seen putting the nails in his hand and the Romans were the one that was seen beating, it was the plan, it was the will of the Lord. He says, no one takes my life. <laughs> he gives them authority to do so. He just uses them to do his dirty work. And it's not even dirty work, it's actually cleaning work because he cleaned us because of that work. And when we, under, it's just, uh, I'm sorry. Um, like I said, I could stop there and go home and I'll be good. But the doctrine of propitiation is precisely this, that God loved the objects of his wrath. Stop there. God loved the objects of his wrath. In us, in our finite, in our imperfect selves, when we are mad at somebody, we hate them. But God loved the objects of his wrath. We're not talking about anger. We're talking about wrath. He, 
loved the objects of his wrath. The very thing that offended him, the very thing that disrespected him, the very thing that hated him with their hearts, not with their words, but with their hearts and with their lives, he loved. He loved the objects of his wrath so much that he gave his own son to the end that he by his blood should make provision for the removal of his wrath. So when we're angry at somebody, we look more so to remove the person. But God, being the perfect God and the holy God, instead of removing the person, he removed his wrath. Oh, my Jesus. Like, yo, who are we? He, he could have easily, and he's done it before, the ark, he obliterated people, but he made a promise to know that I will never put a flood on this earth anymore. Why? And I believe it's out of the love of his people, even in spite of their sin, even back then in Genesis, he loved the people that were drowning in the sea. And I believe that God, because of his love, instead of me dealing with the people, I'm going to deal with my wrath and put my son in the place. Oh, my gosh. Although, although Christ took on human nature, his sense of being the son of God was unaffected. He did the will of the Father, aided by the Spirit, again showing the unity of the Trinity. All persons of the Godhead were in agreement of this way of salvation out of their mutual love for us. So this cannot be considered, thank you, this cannot be considered divine child abuse. People have the notion that penal substitution, it, it shows God abusing his child, divine child abuse. But again, we show that it was their mutual love. Christ in the garden, I, I, was, I was listening to Tim Keller. He said it's almost as if in the garden of Gethsemane, the father brings before Christ, the son, a choice. Because Christ comes and he's praying. He says, Lord, if this cup shall pass from me, let it be. But not my will, but yours be done. Meaning he had the choice in that garden to choose not to. But he chose not to do his will, but the will of the Father. And I'm not talking about his will in the Son. And again, that might distress what I just said. But I'm talking about in, in the flesh. His, he, <laughs> oh, my gosh. All right. <sighs> Propitiation was made by the death of Jesus Christ. We have to understand this is the reason why the cross is at the center, not, just the li- not necessarily the life of Jesus Christ. Because his life... It showed us a lot of things, but our propitiation, our salvation comes from his death. The blood wasn't, isn't important because he bled, but the blood is important because he bled to death. Because if he just bled, I'm sure he was a carpenter. He probably got a couple cuts while he was a kid. So we could, we could have been saved from when he was 12 years old, but our salvation rests when he bled to death. When Paul tells us, oh, Jesus, when Paul tells us that God set forth Jesus to be a propitiation by his blood, his point is that what quenched God's wrath and so redeemed us from death was not Jesus' life or teaching, not his moral perfection or his fidelity to the Father as such, but the shedding of his blood in death. When Christ died, he became the curse for us. Galatians 3, verse 13. I'm going to read it for the sake of time. I know. Time is pressing on us. Um, Galatians 3 verse 13 says quickly, 
um, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, curses everyone who was hanged on the tree. Understand this. This is the eternal son who dwelt for eternity before, we're talking about prior to Christ, Calvary, dealt in eternity of the good, with the goodness of the Father, with the love of the Father, embracing the Father because he was one that knew no sin. So he experienced what we're looking forward to experience because we can't experience it now because of the sin that, is, that we're still dealing with. We're still dealing with the power of sin. And until the present sin is dealt with, which is in our glorification, we cannot experience even close to what Christ was experiencing before he came down the flesh. So he, he was experiencing the, the goodness and the, and the love of God because he never was in a position to receive anything otherwise. But he chose, chose on that cross to deal with the abandonment, the full hatred of his father. Not because of anything he did, but because of everything we did. When I was younger, another thing is, when he, when he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? I, was, I believe I was even taught when I was younger that this was a cry of emotion. That he was just feeling that way, and it was almost as if it was kind of not necessarily accurate in his saying that. But then now I think about it, of him being perfect, there's nothing, and even I was, I was listening to Tim Keller, it says that you see that not even recorded when he was nailed with his hands, that you hear, ow my hands, or ow my feet, but that every word on the cross was calculated. Even when he said, I thirst, it was, it was a sign because of something else, and we, that's a whole other message for another day. But he says, my God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? He, the reason why he was saying that is because he was being forsaken. Because my defense before was the scripture that says he would never leave nor forsake us. But the reason why he would never leave nor forsake us is because of the withholding of his wrath. But now the wrath was being poured out on his son. So now the, the forsakenness that we should be feeling, he was feeling on the cross. The one who spent eternity with the father in his love and his embrace, knew, he knew nothing of the feeling of being abandoned by the father because he always dwelt with the father. But he took on literally, it, that's why his death is not even equated to the death of, you know, that we feel right now. Because it's a death that the ones that don't believe in Christ are going to feel, there's, you die twice, li, li, in, in, biblically. And so, it's not even like a regular death, he was just dying. But he had that second death, he was feeling it there. Because he was dealing with the full wrath, not just the limited wrath of just being just the penalty, which is just death and we, our life ends, but that what unbelievers are going to experience after that, that first death, he was experiencing it on the cross for those that God chose to save. So that those who God is, is saving will never have to feel that. Willingly. I think that's a key word, willingly. He wasn't forced. The one who experienced, we get, we get rich, and we don't want to live in the hood anymore. That's right. That's right. We don't want anything to do with the hood anymore. We don't want to drive Pontiacs no more. We want to drive Mercedes Benz and Bentleys all day long. We don't want to even downgrade. But the biggest downgrade is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the son of the Godhead, to come down in the flesh of man who, create, who was created, not only created, but offended the very person of God. He came down in their form to die for them, to experience death, which was not accounted to him, which was not his penalty. He, he knew no death before the death that he died here, because all he was was life. He came down and died the death and experienced the, literally the hell that we were supposed to go through. Willingly. That's why things like the, 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 the showing example, and I'm, I'm going to keep going because there's a last point that I really want to hit on, and I'm going to let you guys go home. But um, 
That's why the, the key um, um, example of it is are those people who choose at, because of ministry to go and live in the urban areas in order to evangelize. Because it's, it's, it's almost an example of how Christ literally humbled himself to come down a man's form to die for us. And so they, because they are able to live in better places, but because for the sake of Christ, they will come into live into urban areas and to live lower than the means. We talk about Francis Chan who downgraded his house and opened his house to people who are homeless and all these people. And it's, a, it's an example or a picture of what Christ did for us. Whew, I could stay there, but I'm not Propitiation manifests God's righteousness. The word declare, the cross was a public declaration of God's righteousness. The word declare implies a public display. Paul's point is that the public spectacle of propitiation at the cross was a public manifestation, not merely of justifying mercy on God's part, but of righteousness and justice as the basis of a justifying mercy. If as, if as happens, humans do evil, understand this, if as happens, if humans do evil and the judge of all the earth continues to do them good, can he be as concerned about morality and godliness, the distinction between right and wrong in the lives of his creatures as he formerly appeared to be, and as perfect justice would, would seem to require? Indeed, if he allows sinners to continue unpunished, does he not himself come short of the perfection in his office as judge of the world? He had to deal with our sins. He had to because if it did, if he didn't, it would take away from his own character. I saw on the cross, our sins have been punished. The wheel of retribution has turned. The judgment has been inflicted for our godliness, but on Jesus, the Lamb of God, standing in our place. Going with what we, 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 we dealt with as far as him experiencing the wrath, I just wanted to read these, these quotes. It says, On the cross, Jesus lost all the good that he had before, all sense of his father's presence and love, all sense of physical, mental, and spiritual well-being, all enjoyment of God and of created things, all ease and solace of friendship were taken from him. And in their place was nothing but loneliness, pain, a killing sense of human malice and callousness, and a horror of great spiritual darkness. God dealt with him as if he had been exceedingly angry with him and as though he had been the object of his dreadful wrath. This made all the sufferings of Christ the more terrible to him because they were from the hand of his father whom he infinitely loved and whose infinite love he had had eternal experience of. Besides, it was an effect of God's wrath that he forsook Christ. This caused Christ to cry out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? This was infinitely terrible to Christ. Christ's knowledge of the glory of the Father and his love to the Father and the sense and experience he had had of the worth of his Father's love to him made the withholding the pleasant ideas and manifestations of his Father's love and as terrible to him as the sense and knowledge of his hatred is to the damned that have no knowledge of God's excellency, no love to him, nor any experience of the infinite sweetness of his love. It's just further driving the point of that he literally went through the hell that he did not deserve and he had nothing to do with as far as he he there was no there was not even a mark of his name in the list of people or 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 even being there's a list of people even possible to go to hell but yet he chose it's because of that position first of all that he was worthy he was able to even stand in our place yet he chose to be in our place and to experience that on the cross for us to be forsaken by God his father for us if we go to the application, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, yeah, I'm going to close with application. And what does that mean for us? 
Oh, I'm, I've learned to start doing this because of PD. But um, first and foremost, we have to address the two classes of people because we can't live in, in thinking that uh, everyone here is saved. Everyone here has, has uh, given their life and surrendered to Christ. To the unsaved, the benefits of this substitution are not attainable unless you are born again. You must repent of your sin and trust solely in the Lord Jesus Christ. So meaning all this that we just talked about, the propitiation for your sins, it means nothing if you are not born again. And that's truth. I'm not going to act like it's attainable to everyone. I'm not going to act like no matter what you do in your life, you're saved. And that's, that's another uh, a belief of universalism, which is against the Bible. But to the saved, there are five applications real quick that I want to go through. Number one, put the source of your joy in the cross. Not in anything else. Not, in the, not even in the blessings that God has given you today. Not even in the, the house that you're living in. The fact that he keeps you healthy. But in the source of your joy is in the cross. Because out of the cross, everything else comes together. Amen. Number two, recognize that victory has already been won at the cross. Stop, stop looking forward to victory and look back at the victory already won. When you're going through troubles, the victory has already been won. Again, Satan's head has already been crushed. There's already been victory won for you, so walk in that. Number three, stop beating yourself up because of your sin. Like PD said, I think two weeks ago on Resurrection, Resurrection Sunday, he says if you, if you believe that what you've done cannot be forgiven, you're saying that what Christ did on the cross is not enough, that he needs to go up there a second time. And you're degrading his sacrifice. Number four, understand that the only thing in life that you deserve is death. Christ took that and in return gave you life and life more abundantly. Live in gratitude of that. Number five, share this good news with those who are lost so that they too can partake in the blessing of the cross. I said, hey, right by their heads. Lord, I thank you for this time that you allowed us to, uh, to, to partake of your word. Lord, I ask, Lord, that these, the, the, the seeds that you have planted, Lord, be in the fertile soil, Lord, that someone else comes to, uh, toward them and that you bring, bring forth the growth, Lord. I ask, Lord, that if there are hearts and stones, Lord, that you are reaching out to turn into hearts of flesh, Lord, that I pray, Lord, that I have been used as a, a, a worthy vessel of yours to, to be able to bring forth the gospel, Lord, which is the power of salvation. And we, I thank you for that gospel, Lord, for giving us a chance because of your sacrifice, because of putting your son in our place, Lord, that we now can attain salvation through you and now be reconciled to you, Lord. Where we were once enemies, Lord, we can become friends and sons and daughters of you, Lord. We thank you, Lord, for the blood, not just the dripping blood, but the, the emptying blood of the body of Christ that brought us salvation. That through no one else's blood, but only through his, that we can attain that, Lord. So I thank you, Lord, for those who are, who are praising you for that because we've already um, um, answered your call and that we've, we've already repented, Lord, and are constantly repenting of even our, the sins we've been committing, Lord, in light of the fact that we are looking forward and we are staying reconciled to you and looking forward to an eternal life with you, Lord. If there's anybody here, Lord, who, who is... is who, is not, who has not repented to you, Lord, I ask Lord, that you turn those hearts of stone into hearts of flesh, Lord, that they may see the gospel, Lord, see that you have come and to die for, for your people, Lord, and that, Lord, that you are calling at the cross, Lord, for us to come to the cross, see the blood, see the sacrifice that has been paid for us, Lord, and in light of that, walk in, in light of that, Lord. And so I thank you. I, I praise you, Lord. I, I ask, Lord, that you continue to let us meditate on the cross, Lord, as we go through the rest of this month, Lord, and even the rest of our days, period, even on our own, Lord, resting on the victory that was won on the cross. So we thank you, Lord, for, being in, for putting your son in our place. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.